Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. Sometimes we think, okay, man, that's serious stuff like the Day of Atonement, that was important to the Israelites. Absolutely, it was important. Is it important to weep before the Lord at times and fast and ask for his help? It absolutely is important. But this joyful feast, this celebration was just as much an obligation on them. So what does this mean? It means that God's people from the very beginning were always to be a celebrating people. We are to celebrate things, and in celebrating them, God helps us see the spiritual realities behind the world that's around us. Hoping God, oh my soul, He is strong and He is strong to save. like celebrations, right? So did the Israelites. It's interesting that God mandated not just solemn assemblies like the Day of Atonement, but also joyous ones like the Feast of Tabernacles, where people camped out and ate for a whole week. Pastor Ricky will be teaching from the Book of Esther, focusing on the creation of the feast called Purim. He'll be showing the importance of remembering events through celebration, and how these lessons from the past apply to us today. Let's join Pastor Ricky now for part one of his message, the Great Reversal. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Esther, chapter 9. Esther, chapter 9. One of the things that we've seen, if you've been with us through the book of Esther, is that the book of Esther is unique in that there is no reference to God in the book of Esther, which seems like a strange thing to have a book of the Bible where God is never mentioned. But we see that the author has a really specific purpose in writing this book. God's people were in exile when this story happened and when all of this was written down. It was written down as an encouragement to the exiles because they felt like God was far away, that he was distant, that he was nowhere to be found in their day-to-day life or their world. And listen, We can feel like that sometimes as well, can't we? We can feel like God is removed or distant or he's not there or maybe we're even looking for him and we we think the circumstances of our life are disconnected from the reality of God. But in the book, we see the answer to the question, where is God when we can't see him? The answer is he's right there working to protect his people through his providence. We see all of these coincidences in Esther that are amazing and astonishing and point to the reality of God's providential work. It just so happens that this Jewish woman named Esther ends up as the queen of Persia. It just so happens that her uncle Mordecai saves the king's life. It just so happens that when an enemy of God rises up to destroy all of God's people, God intervenes and he turns the king's heart toward the Jews. And it just so happens that the enemy that tried to destroy God's people receives the same destruction on himself. It just so happened again and again and again throughout the book of Esther. And those, it just so happened moments are where we see the fingerprints of God. And so today we're gonna be wrapping up the book. And this may seem like a strange ending to a great story. The story has been thrilling and intriguing thus far. And when we end today, it's gonna end with a series of commands about a festival which is not kind of the slam bang, big finish that you would expect. It ends and then there's all these regulations and make sure you do this and make sure it's on this day and make sure you remember that these things happen. So why would this book end 
This great book end with instructions for a festival. Well, the big idea today is simple. It's this. What they're commanded to do is celebrate, and celebrating helps us see. We're going to unpack that, but celebrating helps us see. We're going to pick this up in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, meaning the command to slaughter all of the Jews or to authorize the slaughter of all the Jews, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Guys, I want to pause here because this is something of a theme statement for the whole book of Esther. The author is summing up everything. On that very day that it looked like things were darkest, the reverse occurred. On that day, destruction was coming, the reverse occurred. Then the author describes, here's how it happened. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities, throughout all the providence of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Remember, he had risen in power to take Haman's place. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Then the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, as they were authorized to do, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. The first edict was, you can slaughter the Jews on this day. They couldn't undo that edict, so they issued another edict, which was the Jews could defend themselves. And so this is recording that they were successful. We're gonna skip some of this reading. I encourage you to follow back up with it later. But the ensuing verses record that all of the men that were destroyed in Susa, the capital, all the people destroyed elsewhere. Evidently, more people were still standing ready to attack the Jews. And so the king authorizes a second day of self-defense. And they are again successful and victorious there. And skip down to verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Notice this, Mordecai commands them, he obliges them to do this. He obliges them to be happy and glad and have a feast day and send gifts of food to one another. Let's skip down to verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Now, remember that the poor in the book of Esther meant the dice or the lots that they would cast. And so Haman, seeking to destroy the Jews, casts these lots to determine what's the perfect day to destroy the Jews. And so he casts lots and he decides this is the perfect day. He has no idea that that day he casts lots for is the day after his own destruction. That by casting those lots, he thinks... He has mastery over the Jews, but God has mastery over him. God is the one that determines where the lots fall. God is the one who is still in control. And so the people were to celebrate that it seems like blind chance is in control. No, our God is the God over chance. 
Therefore, continues, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan and province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. I'm going to stop there. There's a bit more at the end. It includes letters being sent to everyone, and there's sort of a summary statement of how Esther is the queen and Mordecai is the second in command, and the, the Jewish people have risen to prominence in the nation of Persia, which is the greatest nation of the world at that time. So here's the question. Why does this grand narrative with all these instructions about a holiday? Remember, the big idea today is that celebrating helps us see. So we're gonna ask three questions today. The first question is why celebrate? Why celebrate? Well, in the Old Testament, we see celebrations and festivals and feasts commanded by God. They were to mark certain events with a special day. We see this first in the Passover in Egypt and with the connected Feast of Unleavened Bread, which were tied together. And Exodus 12, verse 7 says this, and you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute, meaning a law, forever. So this isn't like, this is not like the U.S. government, the way that we roll with holidays. The U.S. government proclaims this is a holiday. What do we usually celebrate on holiday? We celebrate that we don't have to go into work, right? And some days we're going, okay, what is the Labor Day thing again? Whatever. We're going to Rudoso. It's just... <laughs> And so the government gives us the day, but it doesn't obligate us to do anything on that day. Like on Labor Day, thou must bring out the regulations of the labor conditions of the early America. And, you know, we don't have to do any of that. But here, God's people are actually commanded to do certain things on certain days. These were laws or statutes. Why is that? Well, as we see in this simple verse... They were meant to remember something, to mark something, to celebrate something. They were to remember that on that very day, God brought their nation out of the land of Egypt. The holiday, the celebration helped them see the reality of what God had done for them. And celebrating helps us see the unseen realities that we often just float through life without acknowledging. Every year on Father's Day growing up, my parents made me write cards on Father's Day. Um, my mom obviously made me write a card for my dad, but my mom also made me write cards for my grandfathers. So I remember every year I'd get the cards. You know, sometimes she'd have the cards or she'd tell me to go get a card and so I'd have to fill out the card and I was obligated to give a card to my grandfathers on Father's Day. But I remember it was some point during my teen years, probably mid-teens, when I realized as I was writing a thank you note out, I realized, oh my gosh, this man actually really has influenced me. I love what I've received from him. The fact that I like building and making things. My granddad, Jordan, who is great at building and making anything, that love came through him. 
And then I began to see aspects of the character of my dad's dad, that he always worked hard every day, showed up early. He never complained. And that ethic being built into me, and I began to realize, oh my gosh, these guys really are exerting a huge force on my life. And in that way, being obligated to celebrate them helped me to see their value in a sense. It put a day in my calendar, and the Father's Day is not in the Bible, right? I'm not obligating everybody to write cards on Father's Day to the grandparents or anything, but it helps us see, just us as human beings need opportunities to see the realities of the world around us that we often sail by without acknowledging. And in this way, all the other feasts and festivals were to be times where Israel, God's people, would see as they were celebrating. Here's just a few examples. There's a festival of the first fruits, where God's people would bring the first fruits of the harvest. They were an agrarian society, a farming society. So they would, at the first things that came out of the ground, they would take and offer to the Lord. Now, that's really dangerous if you don't know how well the harvest is going to go. The first stuff out of the ground may be some of the last stuff out of the ground if it's a bad year. But instead, you take that, you offer it to the Lord as an acknowledgement of the fact that, Lord, we really are dependent on you for all we have. And then there were subsequent holidays like Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks where they offered some of the harvest at the end of the harvest in proportion to how big of a harvest it was. So you offer the first fruits and then at the end you offer whatever has kind of come out of the harvest that year. And what's the point of that? Well, is it a reality that God is our provider? Is it a reality that we are dependent on him daily for what we have? It is. Is it a reality that we should turn in gratefulness to the Lord for all that we have? It is, and yet it'd be so easy to just show up, start harvesting, keep harvesting, finish harvesting, and go on with our lives. And so the Lord puts these reminders, these celebrations to help his people see. My favorite holiday, if I had to pick one, which I wish we still did, was the Feast of Booths. This is where, in Numbers 29, the Israelites were commanded to literally camp out and build little huts for a week, eat tons of food, have sacrifices every day, and remember how God sustained them in the wilderness. So this would be like if a whole church came and like camped out on our property back there, and all we did for a week was grill stuff, I could get into that. If we could turn the 4th of July into a week of just camping and hanging out, that sounds awesome. Well, why was the Lord doing that? He wanted his people to remember. Remember that I sustained you and I still sustain you today. So the main point is that celebrating helped God's people see the spiritual realities that they often ignored around them. Now add to this kind of the backdrop of the book of Esther. It seems like to the exiles, God is absent. God's people are living day to day under foreign rule, Seems like God is nowhere to be found. Their culture is not acknowledging their God. And they would go day to day, week to week, month to month, with little to no declaration of who God was. Remember that these people were not living in Jerusalem. So many of the reminders that they would get from living in Israel were not there. They're living far away from all of that stuff. And so this festival, this feast, Purim, was a specific way for the exiles in that community to stop and remember the reality that God was there, even if it didn't feel like he was there. And this is one quote from the ESV Study Bible that I loved. The commentator says this, as with regard to their feasts and their lamenting, 
the Jews were to take their obligation to observe the joyful Feast of Purim just as seriously as they had already accepted their obligation to observe days of fasting and weeping. Meaning, sometimes we think, okay, man, the serious stuff, like the Day of Atonement, that was important to the Israelites. Absolutely, it was important. Is it important to weep before the Lord at times and fast and ask for his help? It absolutely is important. But this joyful feast, this celebration, was just as much an obligation on them. So what does this mean? It means that God's people from the very beginning were always to be a celebrating people. We are to celebrate things, and in celebrating them, God helps us see the spiritual realities behind the world that's around us. Recently, our community group took some time a few weeks ago. We had a week where we didn't do the study, and we just shared stories of how God, either recently or in the past, showed himself faithful to us. Times where it didn't seem like God was there, but the reality was that God was there leading and guiding us. And at one point, we kind of came out, surveyed our lives, and were able to see it. So we, we just swapped stories. Some of them were recent. Some of them were funny. Some of them were really serious. There's a few about how people met their spouses in unexpected ways. You go down the roads of, okay, if this hadn't happened and that hadn't happened and this hadn't happened, this never would have happened. So basically, we traced my relationship to Jen all the way back to a random conversation that Tom had with Jen's pastor that neither of us knew about, that neither of us knew would set into motion this whole chain of events that would end up with us meeting and getting married. So Tom, thanks for that, man. Thanks for having that conversation. And what's great is, as I'm sharing this, it's helping me as I celebrate what God has done to bring me and my wife together. It helps me see the providential hand of God. That's why God commands celebration. Second, what do we celebrate? What specifically were they celebrating at Purim? Well, we know that they were seeing God's work. We know that they were seeing God at work even when it seemed like he was distant from them. But what specifically is the center of the celebration? I believe it's in verse six, which we read earlier, that on this day that God's people were going to be destroyed, the reverse occurred and they were blessed and prospered and saved. See, this great reversal is what the festival of Purim was centered around. That at one moment, they were all condemned to death and their property and their lives were taken from them. And then at the next moment, they were triumphant and ascendant and secure. See, for God's people, they would remember this great reversal. But for us as Christians, we see something even more clearly than they did. We see that God is the God of great reversals. And the reversal in Esther is just a tiny picture of the greater reversal that we see when we arrive in the New Testament. The greatest reversal in the course of human history that we now, looking back, can see is the person and work of Jesus Christ where on one day, all that was facing us in death and destruction and separation from God, the reverse occurs. And all of a sudden, life and blessing and security come out of what Jesus has done. I'm gonna read at length from a commentator, Dr. Ian Duguid, who was my favorite professor in school. And I tried to reword this better and I just kept failing. So I'm just gonna read you what he said. He says this, Jesus did not bring about this great reversal by waging comprehensive holy war on the enemies of God's people, the Gentiles, and destroying them utterly, but rather by destroying the ancient enmity between them and God. 
See, this is good news because our great opposition wasn't from outside enemies. It was holy opposition from God. Any who are sinners find themselves opposed by God. We were the Hamans, the enemies that deserve to be wiped out. But he came not as a mighty warrior, but as the prince of peace. In Christ, the former Amalekites and Jews, Hamans and Mordecais are now brought together in the glorious peace that flows to the one new people of God. Yet our peace, he says, was at a great cost. Peace was established for us by God declaring holy war upon his own son. This is what was happening on the cross. God the Father laid upon his son Jesus the guilt of all the sins of those who would become his people. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. All the ugliness and pain of the entire history of holy war were concentrated into six hours of awful agony and the burning darkness of the cross. His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans to the point of death, but he was exposed to cosmic shame by being hung on the cross, the way Haman was hung in view of all the city. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of God's judgment curse. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. Why? so that we might receive peace through his righteousness and have rest from all our guilt and sin and access into the life-giving presence of God. See what he's saying? He's saying that the cross is our great reversal, that in the story of Esther, we look for ourselves and we think, oh, maybe I'd be brave like Queen Esther or kind of wise like Mordecai. No, he says, listen, if you find yourself in the story, we're the Haman guy. We've opposed God. We've gone after God in rebellion and the curse of God should hang on us. And yet on that very day that, that our sins should be carried out, Jesus is the one who has hung in our place for our sins. This is just utterly amazing. In the Old Testament, if you were hung on a tree, you bore a special curse. And that curse was not just, okay, you're exposed and shame before everyone. It was a spiritual curse that rested on that. And the New Testament says very explicitly that that curse for sin was the curse that rested on Jesus. That's why Jesus died the way he died. Do you ever consider that? Jesus was hung on a tree because being hung on a tree meant that you were cursed by God. And in that moment, he was cursed by God. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong in listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915-562-7100. And also, let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 
562-7100. Or you can email us at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.